This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 50, titled Exposure to Vape Culture, wherein we discuss the 2014 Words of the Year. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. It is late December, which means it's a time for taking stock, looking back, remembering. Lexicographers like to do that, too, and they choose frequently a word of the year, which mm-hmm. may or may not seem like a silly exercise. We'll talk about that. What uh, What's your word of the year, Bob? I'm really not a good person to ask that question of because... My word of the year is the same every year. And, uh, it's the only word you can remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's problem number one. No, it's a great word, and I admire it so much, and I seldom hear it. But when I do hear it, I always get a kind of a thrill, and it's uh, immutable and forever. Wait, that's two words, immutable and forever. No, 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 no. <laughs> My word is immutable and forever, and I I just can't let it go with some Johnny-come-lately neologism, you know, such as tends to uh, populate the words of the year lists. Not this year. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, we gave we kind of foreshadowed the words of the year in the otherwise incomprehensible <laughs> title of this episode. <laughs> in fact, we foreshadowed the shit out of the words of the year. I don't know if that's really foreshadowing so much as it is just 
telling what yeah, they are. Like <laughs> <laughs> Foreshadowing implies some subtlety. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we just cobbled together an improbable uh, sentence fragment right. <laughs> with the various words. And, you know, I'm not even going to give away what my word of every year is because I have a feeling it's going to come up again uh, in the course of this conversation. But you say you do have uh, your own 2014 favorite. Well, I have my favorite word that I learned for the first time this year. It's mm. not a traditional word of the year. It's tied to 2014 only in the sense that that's when you happen to encounter it. Exactly, yeah. And it's not a common word, and it, it's a word that, from what I could tell, appears mostly in maybe medical glossaries, which... <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no surprise there. <laughs> <laughs> Something I do in my spare time. Hmm, let me see what I have this year. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell it to you later on in the episode, probably at the end. But first, we are going to talk to three lexicographers about their respective words of the year, Peter Sokolowski from Merriam-Webster, Catherine Martin from Oxford, and Jane Solomon from Dictionary.com. And then we'll talk to Aaron McKean of Wordnik.com, who is not so keen on these words of the year pronouncements. And she'll explain why. But first up is Peter Sokolowski. He's editor-at-large of Merriam-Webster. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So, Peter, Merriam-Webster's word of the year is culture. Culture, C-U-L-T-U-R-E. Why culture? Why in 2014? Why that word? Why now? Well, you know, that's something that I maybe can't answer completely. We try to keep our word of the year to be reflective of the data that we see on our online dictionary at merriamwebster.com. And the traffic is large. We get 100 million or more page views per month. And we monitor that traffic. So we get to, in a sense, eavesdrop on the national conversation. What we found is there are two kinds of words. So the words that are looked up every day, day in and day out, regardless of the news cycle. Those words are looked up in such volume that even if there were a spike in interest in a particular word, for example, integrity or socialism or democracy or pragmatic, we almost wouldn't notice because the general traffic on those words is high every day. The second category are words that do spike and change over time and change in a quick way, rapid way, for example, spike for a day or for a week. And so what we've tried to do with our top 10 list is present those words from this second category, those words that show a change over the last 12 months, but also have the highest volume. So what we get is, in a sense, words that we don't choose but are chosen by the public. And we found that frequently words that seem to be relatively bland words, like last year's science or this year's culture, these are actually the words that people are looking up. And we basically feel that we have to tell the truth about the words, and that's why hmm. we're reporting it this way. Well, that makes some sense. I must say, I was scratching my head about your choice of culture. I had assumed, and clearly incorrectly, that the criteria were would be biased towards neologisms, coinages that hadn't... Sure the twerk of 2014. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when I saw that you had chosen culture, I assumed that, that someone was being bribed or that the committee was drunk at the time of making the selection. <laughs> not uh, at all. <laughs> you actually are not predisposed to choosing new coinages. No, in fact, because we have the dictionary online that gets so much traffic that's a big part of our business, we do think that that's sort of our story to tell. And it is true that sometimes that corresponds with the zeitgeist. 
And so if you go back all the way to our first couple of years, like the word democracy was our first word of the year, 2003. That was a year in which we were discussing the invasion of Iraq. So it made perfect sense that this was the word people were curious about. And then we had the word bailout for 2008, again, made perfect sense with the recession. The word socialism for 2012 with the re-election of President Obama, again, made perfect sense with the biggest story of the year. But, you know, sometimes what we found is when there isn't a single great narrative, that it's the actual adult vocabulary. Again, words like culture are on this list, words like insidious or feminism or surreptitious. And, you know, I've been observing this list for a lot of years, and we do kind of make an assumption about how dictionaries are used. We think that because we tell children to look up words they don't know, that that's the way we all use dictionaries. But in fact, I think adults most typically look up words that we do know or that we do encounter frequently. Do you have any idea how culture of all words wound up in the mass consciousness, how it became a zeitgeist word? It doesn't seem to have changed in meaning any time over the last, I don't know, 300 years? Right. You're exactly right about that. You know, it's not a total surprise to us because it has had an annual spike and a very significant one on September 1st every year. And it is absolutely the number one back-to-school lookup during the month of September. We see a huge spike between August and September. Wait, wait, wait. Why why back to school? What does the word culture have to do with school? And my drunkenness theory is once again gaining traction. (laughs) Back to school? I know. There are other terms like rhetoric, for example, and irony that are also looked up at back-to-school time. And you realize, okay, this is a lot of college freshmen doing their first assignment or doing their homework. But the thing is, the word culture is now, in a sense, replaced the word society in academic terms. So it used to be, maybe in the 1970s and earlier in the humanities, you would be studying the individual and society. That was the formalized structure of so much education. Today, you're more likely to have a course that's called, you know, culture through film or African-American culture. And the thing is, culture is a kind of a grown-up word. It does isolate and identify a subject that you're talking about or a group or any particular kind of idea. It's kind of an academic speak term. And I think a lot of students are hearing their professors use the term. It's in the names of their courses and their textbooks. And confronting the fundamental problem with this word is it's very abstract. You know, when I learned that Merriam-Webster's word of the year was culture, it occurred to me that a very modern, or what I assumed was a very modern use of the word culture was a noun followed by the word culture, right? So say Mm -hmm. radio culture. um, Gamer culture. Right, exactly. Gamer culture. And so I looked this up in the OED, and as far as I could tell, their earliest citation for this use of the word culture, a modifying noun, and then the Mm -hmm. word culture, what they call a way of life or social environment characterized by or associated with the specified quality or thing. Their earliest citation is from 1912 from Mm -hmm. a magazine called New Fun, which was in large part a fetishist magazine, and one fetish in particular that it was devoted to was the fetish of wearing very tight corsets. And the the sample (laughs) sentence was, truly she comes from the very core of corset culture, Austria, but really when she speaks of seven and eight inch waists, one needs must in politeness suspect a printer's error. And so, yes, indeed. 
<laughs> this uh, this phrase where you have a modifying noun followed by culture, which I think is at least in part why culture was chosen as the word of the year, because that is a construction that you see quite often now in 2014. That dates back uh, more than a century. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think that you've kind of nailed it because even in recent weeks and months, we've heard a lot about, for example, rape culture. You can speak in, in very broad terms like celebrity culture or specific terms like marching band culture or test prep culture. The term pop culture dates back right to around 1970. And it does kind of confer a status. And clearly it was thought at that time that status had to be conferred to entertainment and music that wasn't of the highbrow nature. And so I think what we're seeing is a culture coming into its own. It's funny because, you know, when I think of pop culture, I think of an area of our culture that is very widely accessible and has mass appeal. And it seems that in a lot of these phrases with the noun followed by the word culture, it's almost a nichification of the particular idea. The verticalization of American culture Mm -hmm. with a capital C, which corresponds with the more pluralistic society that makes us focus in academia less on society writ large, but on individual cultures, lowercase, Mm -hmm. that, that constitute it. So that all makes sense. But I'm still hung up on something, Peter. Mm-hmm. The rationale you cited is based on the incidents on MW.com of searches for the word culture. And I'm having difficulty understanding why anybody w- would look up the word culture. I understand <laughs> it's abstract, but so is the word love, and everybody knows what it means. Why is anyone looking up a word that they already understand? I wrote about this for Lexicon Valley, actually, exactly a year ago. That was about the word science, but there's a long part of that article in which I sort of talk about this theory that I've come to about adult use of dictionaries, which is that we use dictionaries to confirm, to check things that we already know. The fact is, love is one of the words that's most looked up in the dictionary also, somewhat surprisingly. It spikes very high, and in fact, is number one in February every year. And I mean number one. It is the most looked up term. And it's certainly not for spelling. So clearly people are going to the dictionary for other things. In the case of love, I think it's a broad philosophical idea that the people are simply asking, what does the dictionary say about love? All I can say is I don't think we can read people's minds. I think we can just read the data and we can say that for whatever reason, they're trying to get their minds around some part of that word. It may be something very simple like the etymology, although I think for most people, they're not thinking in those terms. I think most people are really going for the definition. You know, Peter, it occurs to me that people might be looking up love for its pronunciation, because as Woody Allen said to Diane Keaton in Annie Hall, I loathe you. So (laughs) there may be some confusion. (laughs) Uh, if, If this is true, my wish for 2015 is that the word of the year is either nonplussed or erstwhile. (laughs) Because uh, these are words that I see misused approximately as much as I see them invoked properly, including, including in the New York Times in the past seven days, I saw the word nonplussed used when it was clearly meant to be plussed. Not used to mean baffled. Yes, it was not used to mean baffled. On the contrary, it was used to mean unbaffled. 
So, Peter, apart from the September 1st, beginning of the academic year spike in the word culture, is there any other specific moment in the calendar year that we can point to that would allow us to say, aha, there's a phrase that really generated a lot of culture lookups? Or was it just like an across-the-board, month-to-month, very atypically large volume for that word? It was the latter. It was kind of like the rising tide of lookups. So we did see spikes according to the academic calendar, which includes both finals times at the ends of semesters and both beginnings of semesters. But you know what? We couldn't isolate any other individual use of the word. It simply was the word with the most volume that changed the most in percentage terms from last year. Well, on the subject of consulting Merriam-Webster online for the definitions of words that I already know the definition to, Peter? (laughs) Yes. I have a good feeling towards someone who has helped me, given something to me, etc. That's the definition for thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, thanks so much. Thanks so much, and happy holidays to you both. Peter Sokolowski is editor-at-large of Merriam-Webster. Next up is Catherine Martin. She is head of U.S. Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. Hey, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we spoke with Peter Sokolowski of Merriam-Webster, whose word of the year was culture. And the first thing I asked him was, why culture, why now? It's obvious why now for vape, right? But why vape? Well, And excuse me, before you answer that, Tell us what vape means, in case there's anyone out there who doesn't know. Well, it's both a noun and a verb. And as a verb, it means to inhale and exhale the vapor produced by an electronic cigarette or similar device. And as a noun, it refers to the device itself. I'm not a smoker of either nicotine or marijuana or crystal meth or crack cocaine, for that matter. So I've never vaped. And although I know that word has gained currency over the past year, it seems to me and I'll use Merriam-Webster's word of the year, it seems to me a word that you would associate with smoking culture, not one that you would imagine captures any kind of zeitgeist of 2014, although I guess marijuana legalization was certainly something that gained traction this year. So I'll just put it to you again, why vape? Well, we start with the evidence as our point of departure. So we were looking for a word of the year that was in a sort of liminal position in the lexicon, just breaking into the common vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And so in our tracking corpus, the usage more than doubled over last year, and we saw vape transitioning from being a word that was invariably followed by an explanation when it was used in the media to one that could be used without comment, so indicating an expectation that it would be understood. I agree with you that it's associated with smoking culture, but I disagree with you that that's not relevant to the broader society. And in fact, there were concerns in various municipalities about changing their regulations about smoking because is vaping or is it not a different thing? And if it's a different thing, it wasn't covered under existing anti-smoking laws. They had to change laws Mm -hmm. to ensure that they could exclude vaping from public places if that was what they wanted. There's been anxiety about the proliferation of the use of vape pens, as they are sometimes called among young people. In fact, I think a study was released this week saying that that's indeed a growing trend among teenagers, is that this is a a new way of consuming tobacco more than cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And then it was also obviously featured in discussions about the new legal cannabis industry, which was very much a thing of 2014. And in our tracking corpus, we saw that usage was peaking this year so far. So 
for all of those reasons, we thought that it had the most, of the things we were looking at, these words that were in this liminal category, it seemed to have the most resonance with the zeitgeist. But last year, our word of the year was selfie, and I'll be the first to admit that vape is no selfie. That was just an amazing phenomenon of something a word which catapulted into common usage at a shocking rate, going from something that no one had ever heard to something that your grandmother was using, and it's just ubiquitous, and it really captured something about the spirit of the time. Vape, it's not Ellen at the Academy Awards kind of level of high profile. I got to say that I think vape is exactly the kind of word that I imagine to be a word of the year. It's kind of quintessential much as selfie was before it. It existed very much as a word from a subculture and now is in common parlance in exactly the way that words of the year seem to uh, do. So, you know, one thumb up. (laughs) Well, it's interesting you say it's been around in the subculture for a long time because one of the other things that we loved about this word, and, you know, we're suckers for a word that has a good story. And in this case, what we found very interesting was that a word which we assumed was of relatively recent coinage actually dated back to the 1980s. And it was coined by a team developing a smokeless tobacco cigarette called the Favor, which was not electronic. It was essentially a cigarette-shaped piece of paper soaked in nicotine-infused liquid. And after we named vape the word of the year, the person who originally popularized the term, Dr. Norman Jacobson, came forward and gave us even earlier evidence showing that vaping was in use from 1980, and he had been very active in promoting it, the incentive was make it clear that inhaling nicotine from this device is not the same thing as smoking, so it's so important to have another word for it. Well, the favor did not succeed on the market, and so the word seems to have gone out of use and for quite some time until being revived in the 1990s. It's this very niche thing, and then only very recently entering the common lexicon. So that's what we thought was a very interesting pattern, too. Yeah, and remarkably, one of the earliest citations of this word in print is from a magazine called New Society in which the author Rob Stepney wrote that this putative vaporizer, they didn't exist at the time, would be, quote, an inhaler or non-combustible cigarette looking much like the real thing, but delivering a metered dose of nicotine vapor. And then he wrote in parentheses, the new habit, if it catches on, would be known as vaping. It was very prescient. And in fact, this sort of thing happens in our language all the time. The word atomic bomb is first cited in the OED from 1914. It's H.G. Wells. Well, obviously, there wasn't an atomic bomb yet, but it was being anticipated. And that that happens more often than you might expect. Okay, atomic bomb goes back to 1914 in the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, as you just said. But, you know, Catherine, Oxford Dictionaries chose vape as its word of the year. And I know Oxford Dictionaries is more than just the OED, but... If you look up vape right now online in the Oxford English Dictionary, you won't find anything. Why is it not there if it's the word of the year? Well, if you searched OxfordDictionaries.com, you would find an entry for vape. But being an entry in the dictionary is not a qualification or a requirement for being Oxford's word of the year. We're looking for things that, as I said, are in this borderland between the niche or the new and the generally accepted. We do sometimes choose something that isn't in any dictionary yet, but in this case, it is in OxfordDictionaries.com, and um, it's certainly something that we're considering adding to the OED as well. So there's an index card somewhere in the bowels of the OED, although I guess it's no longer James Murray's time, so it's now a digital index card that has the word vape written on the top of it and some citations below. 
Yes. In fact, I have done this search in our, we call it Incomings, the digitized version of the old card catalogs, and there's more than one card, digital card for vape. So um, we've been collecting evidence, and when we have enough to put together the entry, you can probably expect to see one. Catherine Martin is head of U.S. Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. Thank you so much, Catherine. (laughs) My pleasure. Really nice talking to you. Next up is Jane Solomon. She's Senior Content Editor and Lexicographer at Dictionary.com. Hey, Jane, welcome to the show. Hi. So at Dictionary.com, you chose as your word of the year, exposure. Why? Well, vulnerability and visibility were at the core of this year's most notable headlines. The sort of obvious hook for us was the Ebola outbreak. And one sense of exposure that applied here was exposure to disease. However, as we dug more deeply into the story, we realized that there was also the concept of media exposure and the fear-mongering that was happening around this conversation that tapped into another sense of exposure. So we felt that this was really, really important this year. And actually, since we picked the word exposure, there's been even more news stories that have been coming up that really resonate with the word. One of them was the grand jury's decision not to indict in the Eric Garner's case. And the other one was, you know, the recent Sony leaks that have happened in the last, what, two weeks. So unlike Merriam-Webster's approach, which was, as Peter Sokolowski told us, very much data-driven, it was based on lookups, how many people looked up the word culture, which was their word of the year, over the course of 2014. Your approach was far more subjective. Oh, yes. This was an editorial-driven decision, though we do have some data-driven projects that we look at. And we just actually published this week a list of some of our trending lookups from 2014. So in that, we found that there are some film words that trend, like Maleficent, Divergent, Interstellar. People are looking up words that they come across in pop culture. Also, the word Anaconda trended, which Nicki Minaj released her, uh, her song Anaconda this year. And then news-wise, we saw Ebola, misogynistic, caliphate. So we also think about data a lot, but for our word of the year decision, it was more about themes. We really aimed to define the year in a word. Hmm. So that was an eloquent defense of the choice of exposure to describe 2014. If I could just go on redirect, it would equally apply to just about every other year because stuff happens every year that hinges on people or data or information having been exposed. 2008, Rod Blagojevich was exposed to have been running a a shakedown racket as the governor of Illinois, and uh, John Edwards was exposed as a philanderer. You know, in previous years, I, I would argue every previous year, you could certainly cherry pick a whole bunch of significant news stories in which the word exposure would apply because by its very nature, news exposes stuff. In other words, I, I'm moved by your explanation, but unpersuaded. You're simply going to have to do better than that. Well, as for why this year... Some of the stories that you just talked about were about famous people having information exposed by the news, like a big scandal. But this year we saw everyday people get their information exposed with all the hacks. We had the um, Home Depot, Chase, Target, and then the iCloud hacks, which while the people who were talked about in the news were famous people, 
iCloud vulnerabilities touches all of us. Anyone could be a target now. It's not just if you're famous. It's not just if you are a politician. If you're powerful. If you're powerful, yeah, it could be anyone. Or even if you speak out against something like Gamergate, someone could dox you, uh, which means exposing someone's private information online. So I think this year it sort of reached a tipping point. Well, then, if that's the reasoning, why exposure as opposed to, say, vulnerability? Exposure not only talks about the exposure of the private information, but also it hits on the photographic sense of exposure. There's legislation for police to wear body cameras and the large role that the videotape played in how the public reacted to the grand jury's decision not to indict in the case of Eric Garner. Hmm. Well, I, I have to tell you, Jane, in the space of four minutes, I have gone from, and this was exactly where I was, exposure, that's just fucking stupid. Two, huh, yeah, huh, zeitgeist. You know, this is uh, this is both zeity and geisty. I I think um, you're so. I'm not saying I'm compl- You've completely changed my mind, but I I no longer think that you were drunk when you made the decision. <laughs> I mean, we did consider other themes, geopolitical themes, gender identity issues, technology, slang. I totally understand critics of the whole concept of word of the years because it's really hard to distill the year in a word and to be the gatekeepers. But here at dictionary.com, we kind of think of it more as an intellectual exercise, even though, yes, it's a very hard and possibly impossible thing to do. I think that it's exciting that people get worked up about language once a year and have deep discussions about words. That's something I like about the word of the year. Jane Solomon is senior content editor and lexicographer at dictionary.com. Okay, so as promised, Bob, next up is Erin McKean, who does not choose a word of the year. She's the founder of wordnick.com. More about that site in a little bit. Hey, Erin, welcome to Lexicon Valley. Thanks so much for having me. So it is now late December. This is the time, of course, when lexicographers such as yourself get together and choose for their respective dictionaries or organizations a W-O-T-Y or a word of the year. And you, Erin, say, bosh, nonsense. (laughs) We shouldn't be doing that. I think that perhaps word of the year, which started more or less as Dictionary marketing might have outlived its usefulness at this point. So it used to be back in the days of print books that you could do a fantastic marketing campaign around back to school, and people would buy a new dictionary to take with them to high school, to college. And then once people left college, you were pretty much stuck. And then the idea was, well, how can we make people think about dictionaries? And more specifically, how can we make people think about our dictionary as being the right one and the one to use? And so I think the dictionary kind of took the idea from the American Dialect Society, which has been selecting a word of the year for a long time, not just to market the Dialect Society, because really how much marketing can a small scholarly organization really try for, but instead to make people think about language and linguistics and how language changes to publicize the fact that English is not this kind of set in stone monolith, but is something that does change and that there are people who study those changes and those variations in English. 
So really what you're saying is it started out as kind of like a cheap marketing ploy because dictionaries can say, hey, you still don't know what all of the words mean by our dictionary. Or they can do something fun like choose a word of the year and try and build hype around their dictionary. I don't know why you should call that ploy cheap. It's certainly <laughs> inexpensive, but I don't think it's unsavory anyway for the dictionary publishers to want to call attention to their books. It's a fun exercise. So if you have objections to it, Aaron, is it because it's so inherently promotional or does your suspicion reside elsewhere? Totally fine with promoting dictionaries. I think people should promote dictionaries every chance they get. What I'm less happy with is it keeps reinforcing the idea that many people have that dictionaries are the gatekeepers of language and that a word isn't a word until it's recognized by one of these gatekeepers. And that some words are good and should be celebrated and some words are bad and we should pretend they don't exist. And I think by choosing a word of the year, it taps a few words that may have been new that year, but almost certainly weren't, and says, oh, hey, you know, we've deigned to recognize these. We've said these are important, but we're just going to ignore all the other words that we might have found this year and leave them alone. Oh, so we're all winners. It's (laughs) like six-year-old soccer, and everybody gets a trophy. I'm having trouble with this, Erin. I think word of the year is more like six-year-old soccer, because if you've ever watched six-year-olds playing soccer, they all mob the ball. So it's like all the lexicographers are chasing the few high-profile words that will get them press, and there are huge swaths of the field just going empty. Yeah, and when I said cheap, Bob, what I meant was more facile, because to suggest that you're going to capture the zeitgeist of an entire year by choosing one word, is really absurd. And it calls attention, as Aaron said, to this word in a way that doesn't really make sense. Look, guys, I think you're imputing a motivation or even a claim on the dictionary publishers of the world that they haven't made themselves. I don't think any publisher says that its word alone stands for the zeitgeist. It's just that for whatever reason, it popped up, maybe because it's a neologism, maybe because it found itself in the news and just had a higher incidence than usual, you know, it may reflect something about the year, but maybe not. It's just interesting, and not everybody can be a winner. I think you guys are just too irritable. I'm not so sure it's about everybody being a winner. There's also an element of point and look as well when you start thinking about words as being part of a zeitgeist, because often... The words that are selected for this list or the runner-up list, they're just making an impact on the mainstream culture. And so there's a lot of, oh, let's point at the funny people who use this word over here. And not so much, oh, let's celebrate that this is now in the language of more people. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to continue to beat up on you, Erin, and I (laughs) I, I apologize. But all of a sudden, at least for the next five minutes, I intend to be passionate about this. You're also... Uncomfortable with the idea that the elites are, you know, with a wave of the hand, anointing a word with special significance, and you seem resentful of the self-regard that that implies. But elites get to be elites because we do entrust them with certain powers and responsibilities, and we would be very disappointed in them if they weren't being the stewards of, in this case, lexicography. You seem to be criticizing them for the very thing that that you are. 
Now, yes, I mean, my hands are not clean in this. I was the person who did podcast as the word of the year in 2005 for Oxford University Press when I was there. Aha. It's not so much that I dislike the idea of elites. It's more that I'm trying to think about what's the bigger goal that lexicographers should have. And I think that trying to convince people that, that you're a gatekeeper and that some words belong in the dictionary and some words don't belong in the dictionary tends to stunt the linguistic expressiveness of the people who want to use words that aren't in the dictionary. It's kind of an artificial distinction that was made purely because print dictionaries just weren't big enough. Well, I do take your point, Aaron, but, you know, they do keep putting new words in the dictionary, so the living language still lives. I just don't think it's quite the gated community that you're fearing it's become. Even putting in new words monthly or quarterly doesn't really keep up with the rate of change. And it's still the in or out mentality. And in fact, that's why I founded WordNink, because you can type in anything and we will show you whatever data that we have collected, even if we don't have a traditional dictionary definition, because most people learn the words that they know from context. And so if we can assemble enough context for you, you may never even need a traditional dictionary definition. And I would suggest... Bob, that even these very gatekeepers themselves have recognized the futility of this exercise because now we're seeing words of the year as banal as culture and exposure, whereas once upon a time, words of the year were more likely to be neologisms or culled from the culture in a way that suggested a zeitgeist. Now they're just you know, words, words that we use every day. I think as it's gotten to be more of a thing, that lexicographers have actually gotten more reticent and less willing to be out there and pick really interesting words because it's going to be criticized and people are going to say, oh, well, I don't think that that's representative. What I would love to do is pick a 100 people, pick some writers, pick some musicians, pick some people randomly off Twitter and ask each of them what their personal word of the year was and then aggregate that. I think you'd get a better picture of what people have been thinking about and what's been new to them this year than letting a handful of lexicographers who are almost certainly working within the constraints set by the marketing department Hmm. to let them do it. Well, I would say that that's a call to our listeners to submit what you think and think about this seriously, what you think is your word of the year. And maybe we'll read off a list of the ones you submitted in the new year. I would love to hear that. You know, I suddenly realize, Mike, what a dumbass I am, because I'm sitting here arguing with Aaron, thinking it's an isolated point. But what we're really discussing is the whole raison d'etre for wordnik. inclusiveness (laughs) inclusiveness <laughs> and kind of openness to at least consider words that are just beginning to bubble up in common usage. That's my soapbox. I keep standing on it. Uh-huh. In that sense, then, Aaron, actually, the idea of objecting to a word of the year, you might call a cheap marketing ploy for <laughs> wordnik. I wish that it would work. <laughs> Well, you got on a major, major, major national podcast, podcast being the word of the year you chose while at the New Oxford American Dictionary back in 2005. Time is a flat circle. 
And I'll say it once again, you still don't know the definition of every word. So log on to wordnick.com right now and start reading. Thanks so much, Erin. Thank you. That was the great Erin McKean. She is the founder of wordnick.com. Okay, Bob. So, yeah, words of the year, they're kind of a silly exercise. They're fun. They provoke conversations like the ones we had just now on this episode, which I thought was interesting. I am persuaded by some of them, I think. Mm-hmm. I am, yeah, it was a surprise. Yeah, I'm persuaded maybe even by all of the choices, yeah. I guess. There's more than one way to skin a cat, and they all have different criteria for choosing the word of the year. Some more right. data-driven than other, based on solely by lookups, and some by what is seems most in the zeitgeist or is simply newly coined. I mean, they're, they're all legitimate ways to figure out a word of the year. Right. And, you know, end-of-the-year lists are just part of the deal. Right. And so, you know, I, I have no objection. Lexicographically, it's meaningless, but mm-hmm. as an intellectual exercise, it's interesting. Except if you believe that it somehow characterizes lexicographers as the word police, the word stewards, the guardians, and more to the point, the anointed who get to decide what is and isn't a word. Worthy. I don't worry about that at all. I know it was an issue for Aaron, who resists the notion that people like her are imbued with some sort of special powers to dictate for the rest of us. But I think she doth protest too much. Lexicographers are imbued with a special power, or at least a special standing, because they are trained in the word arts. And I, I think you can own up to the fact that you are concerned with all things words without declaring yourself some sort of demigod. And I don't think there's anything hypocritical or, or self-regarding about lexicographers picking out interesting words. Point taken. I think that Aaron's strongest argument is the experiment of wordnick.com itself, which is really the ultimate in descriptive lexicographic endeavors, right? It aims to take every neologism out there, however seldom used or however fleetingly used, and document it. In the digital age, there are so many words that come and go very quickly, and it might be interesting for future generations to look back and see a word that really existed for just a year or two in the popular slang and then very quickly went out of fashion, and it would never get documented in a print dictionary, say. There are fewer and fewer print dictionaries nowadays. I think that her concern is not so much that we imbue lexicographers with some special powers, although, as you point out, they do have training often, but that we communicate to the rest of the world that there is this notion of in or outness with regard to words and the bounds of the physical dictionary, the cover-to-cover bounds of the physical dictionary itself, and that really the language is so much more interesting and diverse than that. So my word of the year is a word that I learned for the first time earlier this year, and I was reminded of it recently when visiting my mom in New York. Almost certainly you've never heard this word. It's lalochesia. It's a term that, from what I could tell, as I mentioned, appears largely in medical glossaries, medical dictionaries. And it means the use of vulgarity or profanity to assuage or ease some emotional pain or stress. Like in Tourette's syndrome, where people blurt out 
vulgarities compulsively? No. That's what I think differentiates this. It's the use of vulgarities in a more cathartic way than a compulsion, say. Oh, you mean like my life? Like Bob Garfield. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All is clear now. My life is a Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It comes from I mean... a couple of Greek roots and you can piece it together. But I was reminded of it recently when visiting my mom and sister in New York City. I went out to get some food and I saw a man on the street who, not to make light of what was clearly a mental illness that this man had, but he was walking down the street and every, I don't know, six or seven paces or so, he would stop and just blurt out the most extreme profanities. And I mean like, mother fucking cocksucker, you know, he would just kind of yell it and actually bite into a towel that he was holding. This man sounded like he was pulling up these profanities from the tunnel that they're carving out for the Second Avenue subway in New York, up through the asphalt into his body and out his vocal cords. He was like an Egyptian slave hauling 20-ton rocks to build the pyramids, only he was hauling profanities. And I thought to myself, oh, that reminds me of that word that I encountered earlier this year, lalochesia, where he seems to be using these profanities to mitigate some kind of stress or pain that this obviously emotionally disturbed man is contending with. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it just made me appreciate the power of words and the power of naming something, right? Like I actually feel like I was more empathetic towards this man because I remembered that word Mm. and because I could name this thing as opposed to just thinking of him as some crazy guy who was blurting out profanities. So it's an example and there's a lot of them where the very fact that a word exists to describe this phenomenon humanizes somebody who you might otherwise have just kind of uh, discarded. That's, I think, a much more succinct and very nice way of putting it. Yeah, that's exactly, I think, Mm. what happened. Now, I can tell you my word. It's my word of 2014. It was my word of 2013, 12, 11, back down to maybe 70... 74 when I first encountered it, and the word is... Wait, can I guess? Yeah, sure. Is autoerotic asphyxiation one word? <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> it could be a phrase. It could be a phrase, right? I have ruined more <laughs> nice neckties. No, that's not the word. Oh, <laughs> boy. I just got done saying how I didn't want to like make light of this man's mental illness, and now I'm like clearly... Casting aspersions on like a DSM well, now, I condition. I don't know if it's a DSM condition so much as a you know a hobby. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, my you get word model trains <laughs> and you know nooses at your local hobby store. Well, you know it's funny. I mean, I don't know if it's funny or not, but I learned about that practice for the first time. I would say in 1978. I was a police reporter, and there was a tragedy that flowed directly from that. And I was you know, kind of shocked because I was, simply wasn't aware. But it was five years before that that I learned my favorite word. The word is defenestration. Oh, so throwing yourself or someone else, I guess if it's auto-defenestration, out of a window. Correct. Something plunging from a, out a window to the street, whether by its or his or own power or at somebody else's hand. It's got it all. Yeah. It's got a nice sound to it. It's got inherent drama. It's unusual. And sometimes it is just exactly the right word. And it's not a word that 
if you used it, would get you into trouble with people who like to criticize the use of these 50-cent words because it's really the only word that means what that means, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like you have a choice of synonyms and you could have chosen the less highfalutin word. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It is. And, you know, there's, there's not that many words that describe kind of a series of events. A single word enables you to imagine a whole little set piece. And I actually had a great uncle who in 1963 was an auto and uh, the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, with just all of the sensitivity that fine journalism can bring to bear in a tragic episode such as this, used the front page to show a photograph of the building that he jumped off of into Rittenhouse Square and included, this <laughs> is just unbelievable, the trace marks, the arrow, the hatched lines in the arrow of his trajectory. showing the trajectory. <sighs> Of his descent. That would never happen nowadays. Can you, can you imagine? <laughs> now, I was unaware. I was only eight years old at the time and was unaware of what had taken place. But I remember he died and we had to buy a tree. I was encouraged to buy a tree in Israel in his memory. About 10 or 11 years later, I learned the word to describe the very thing that had, to, I was going to say, befallen my great uncle. But, uh, you know. That was a time when crime reporting was very pragmatically concerned with the facts, right? No matter how weirdly insensitive they were to put in the story, it's like this was the path that this mm -hmm. man took down from the window to the ground. Those are the facts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, let's end the year on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay. Yeah. So uh, tell us what your word of the year is. And we'll read them off maybe in an upcoming episode. Aaron McKean would love to hear them. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please, please follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. And you know what? Let somebody else know about our podcast. Let's really grow our audience in 2015. Can I use grow as a verb, Bob? Is that going to annoy you? I had never heard it until Clinton started using it about growing the economy. Uh, I spend a lot of time around business people now, especially startups, so I hear it endlessly, and I've just kind of sighed with acceptance, and I, I guess it's... You're desensitized? I'm desensitized for the most part, yeah. Okay, yeah. Let's grow our audience in 2015. Thank you so much to Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast, and to all our listeners, Happy New Year. All right, Mikey. 2014, we done here? See you later, 2014. Later, Gator.